Hello, and welcome to the Escape Velocity podcast presented by Modern Wordshop. This is the show for aspiring career changers where we explore how to break through the inertia of the everyday. If you're looking for inspiration to tackle a new career, pick up a new hobby, or just choose to show up to the world in a more authentic and meaningful way, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Kevin Sawyer. So this is the first episode of the Escape Velocity podcast, and I'm very honored to have as my first inaugural guest, Mr. Jarrett Izzo. Happy to be here. So thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm pleased to, to have you on the show. Now, what is escape velocity, right? So in physics, I think, astronomy, physics, it is the speed at which an object, the minimum speed at which an object must attain to escape the gravitational pull of the Earth or any large planetary object that that has gravity. And so the idea for the podcast has come from this sense of, you know, just kind of questioning and seeing people in my circle, you know, changing careers, um, taking hard rights from what they've been doing for, you know, we've all been out in the world for, you know, well over a decade at this point, a lot of changes. Some people have stayed the course, others have taken 180s. Um, So the idea of escape velocity is just trying to figure out over the course of many conversations, uh, why do people choose to do something rather than nothing, right? Why do, what is the force that drives a person to say, you know what, I've been in career A for 10 years, I think I'm gonna do teaching. I think I'm gonna do stand-up comedy, right? And, and even less so even than that, but you know, little things like, what drives a person to pick up a pen and sketch? Something that has no evolutionary or survival value, but there, there is some force that's pushing that person to, to do that thing in that moment. And, and so what I hope to do over the course of several episodes and several guests is just talk to people who have made, um, significant changes in their career or their life, and just try to get some perspective on what drives those decisions at an individual basis. And then maybe as themes emerge, you know, at a, at a broader basis of, 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 forces, whether physical or chemical or um, just peer networks, maybe that kind of drive us to make these hard decisions. So I think one of the cool things about the, the idea is that I'm intentionally going after friends and people in my network that have had multiple lives, so to speak. So Jarrett, why don't you tell us in your own words a little bit about your journey from piano man to elementary school teacher. Yeah, thank you. I think this is an excellent concept for a podcast because you, just on a superficial level, if you encounter somebody and then they just happen to mention in conversation, they did something, and, and the phrase that keeps coming up is, oh, that was, but that was in another life. I was uh, uh, a barroom piano player, but that was another life. And you go, really, was it? Because there, there's gotta be some, you're still you, and there's some, some through line I remember in high school, I had a really good friend, have a really good friend, whose dad in his current station as a dad and mid, middle-aged person was a really buttoned up lawyer. Hmm. And, and um, it was hinted uh, over a number of conversations or knowing, knowing my friend that, oh, back in another life he 
was a jazz horn player. But, and I said, oh, what's the, what's the origin story with that? What's the, how did he, what was the escape velocity? You know, what was the trajectory? Whatever, however you, you use the metaphor. And, and it was put in a very blunt way where it was, oh, he had sort of a revelation. How am I going to provide for my family if I'm a jazz musician? And so I need mm-hmm. to get my stuff together and go, uh, I guess, go to law school. And that, even though that's all I know about the story, however many years later, I do wonder, wait a second, what's the, like, digging deeper, what was that decision-making process like? What were the things that actually pushed you? Was it was it a one day you were playing music and the next day you weren't playing music and you went to law school? Like, that kind of thing. Because for me, it was certainly not, I think there were certain moments of Monday I'm doing one thing and then I'm putting the kibosh on it and Tuesday uh, uh, it's different. However, getting to that point, it was almost like the conclusion was done. I'm thinking specifically of, I'm going to sort of jump into, rather than telling it chronologically, I'm going to go in media res and I'm thinking of a moment like that. So it's a moment, I, I, I was playing piano I was also working in public relations, and so I was working at a public relations firm, and and from there went into teaching. The day I, I remember quitting the public relations job on a on some given day, and going in talking with my boss, and it was about the, the going into that meeting with my boss. I did not anticipate quitting hmm. it was good so you would not yeah sorry go ahead you would not woken up that day with a thought of today's the day i quit my pr to correct job. not today's the day however however i think building over a period of six eight months it was a a uh, a growing number of feelings that uh both pushing me away from that job and toward teaching or something or or something teaching approximate that almost gives rise to the possibility that wow today might be like i i didn't expect this meeting to go this way but i guess i'm quitting okay you bring up the science metaphor with the with the um title of the podcast and actually i think of something slightly different which is sort of like the the model of a of a of an atom and there's around it is the electron cloud and in that cloud, you have the chance of finding an electron. You don't know exactly where it is, but if you go to mm. a certain area around around the atom, you have increasing probabilities of grabbing on to an electron. It's almost like that where I was in the career change cloud. I was in the sea change cloud, and then... And it got more and more likely to, at a certain point, you go, wow, I don't know if, I'm necess- if this is necessarily going to happen on this given Tuesday. However, oh, I guess I'm here, and a couple of emotional pushes this way, a couple of emotional pushes that way. And I go, you know what, boss, I guess this isn't working out. What was the topic of that meeting where you made that decision that that was going to be your last day, or at least that, w- that, that you were firm in your decision to leave? Yeah, I think it was probably <laughs> something related to, like, long-term planning and hard work <laughs> and it was like no i don't want to do either of those things for this job it was so you yeah go sorry go ahead you, you saw the you saw the future ahead of you 
Uh, and you decided that's not something. Yeah, yeah. Or even more defined. I think by that point, if I re- recall, I was in a, uh, I was in a place where I'd said to myself, you know what, I've, I will probably. I believe this was in like, like a February or March of a year, and I said, oh, you know what, I'm gonna try to really give this one more shot, uh, and if it's not working by May, then I'll, then I'll put in my notice and i think i was I, the, the topic of the meeting was something like okay so here's our what's our you know medium term agenda for the next six eight weeks and Jared, you're gonna do this and that and not anything was particularly objectionable it like i had a really good boss he wasn't putting anything really onerous on me it was just i'm looking at the list of the things to do and like the responsibilities which i'd already and i'd like i there's like an internal decision going yeah, I don't. I'm. Uh, I'm just making an executive decision here. I don't think I'm last until May first. I think. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna leave now. <laughs> I'm not doing this. And you've been on the job how long at that point? Over a year at that particular Over job. Over, at that particular job, I was at. I was in PR for. Uh, I don't know, three or four years. So long, now, if that, I recall- that was interesting. I was in there long enough. That was the other thing. It wasn't just sort of like a dilettantish thing. Like I was at a certain point in my career where. Um, uh, am I really doing this? Is this is the this, honeymoon? Yeah, yeah. You the were, honeymoon was done. I had already done. been in a couple of different roles, a couple of different jobs in that industry, and so by that point, it was a: Am I making this my thing, or am I, or am I cutting out? Now you were not a PR major, no. right? So what drove you to that gig in the first place? What drove me to that gig was also chance. Where let's rewind maybe four or five years, and and I was playing piano full time, and that was I did not have the experience like my friend's dad, where I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to provide? Granted, I wasn't married or had have kids or anything, but I was very comfortable. The thing, however, that made me uncomfortable was. I was the young guy playing at piano bars or playing weddings or corporate events or whatever. And all of my peers, uh, all of my peers in that piece of the industry, frankly, the money-making piece, were, were old. And more so, were making the same amount as me on a given Saturday mm. night. And so... Now, when you say old... Old. Like give me, 50, give me a decade. Like 50, 50 plus, you know? Okay. And I went, oh, this is a shame because in any other industry, you're going to get raises or you're going to get a retirement account or you're going to get health insurance. And, and although none of those things seemed really pressing to me at 25, I was like, you know what? I don't want to be. I don't want to be loading out heavy equipment at two <laughs> at two in the morning when I'm fifty. I know that. That's how I can make that kind of lifestyle decision uh, concrete, or how I did make it concrete to myself at twenty five. When something like, well, you got to save for your kid's college fund, and you're like, I don't have kids. Who knows how that's going to go? And that's way too abstract. And so the way I made it defined was looking at this if not like not necessarily unhappy person i was playing with but like there seemed to be there was a there was a bedraggled weathered 
quality that many of these people had. And I went, you, I, I don't know if I, 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 I couldn't see myself staying in that. I didn't want so that you, to be me. So it's interesting because I feel like in both situations, you, you, saw, in, you saw the future. Yeah. When you were in the PR meeting, it was more of an abstract conceptual future. But when you saw your fellow compatriots two, three decades ahead of you, yes. you, you literally saw this is future Jarrett. Yes. And, and future I, Jarrett and is I don't a little like bedraggled. It. And I don't like it. And I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, with the PR, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I wouldn't say it was abstract, and, but, but the, na- the, the concrete nature of it was a little bit different from the few, than the 50-year-old Jarrett lugging a heavy amplifier up a ramp. It was, it was, it was the, the nature of the work was not enjoyable. It was not, I, I, I was having a lot of difficulty sinking my teeth into it in sort of, in two ways. One was the actual day-to-day nature of the work, the writing, the editing, the pitching, that stuff, which you don't really know until you try it. You don't know what it, mm-hmm. it's like. You don't know. You don't know what it feels like, and you don't know the function of the job and what's the actual day to day like. You know, until you got the same coaster in your cubicle, and you just and you got the little coffee ring on it, and you're like, okay, here we go. How do I lock in today? And it's the middle of February, and I'm like, ugh. Like, if you can still get a little juice from, you know what? I really enjoy. I, uh, I mean, you know this as a writer, right? You like enjoy like going, oh, I'm going to like move this sentence around and now it really clicks and it feels good. Like I wasn't getting that juice. Mm. And, second, so that- and secondly, I wasn't, I wasn't getting a, lar- a, a, a kind of a bigger picture juice was, uh, that I wasn't getting was, oh, there's a, like an overall meaning to this work that I can latch on to on those days that I'm not feeling it. I feel like you either have to have one or the other or they have to play off of each other. Like on the days that I'm dragging and just writing a pitch or writing a press release is just ugh, just horrendous. You there has to be like there has to be something in the well deep inside and go, "Oh, you know what? But I'm doing this for a reason. I'm working for an organization that has the right ethics." Or my client so, has something that I can latch on to, you know, and there's like a bigger picture reason. I didn't have that. And the problem is if you don't have that, or at least a little piece of it, it doesn't have to be a completely mission-driven thing. Then the days that are just really dragging and you're not enjoying writing or being in a cube or whatever, then like you're going, why am I here? I'm here for the free snacks. You know? So it, so <laughs> the sustainability of a, of a job, of a gig, mm-hmm. there's there's the little juice of the little micro moments that just kind of fuel your passion or, mm-hmm. you know, your interest or, or kind of give you a little kick mm-hmm. and the, and the big juice of, well, this work ladders up to something meaningful beyond me. And so it sounds like the sustainability of any gig is fine as long as you were able to oscillate between the big juice and the little juice. But as soon as one of those elements are gone or at least no longer as yep. concentrated, yep then yep. the gears start to fall apart a little bit. And then the question of, is this, this, is this the long-term thing for me starts yes. to come up? Yes, that's right. There's some sort of interplay between, a, yes, the, I like that, big juice and little juice, of like, what's the purpose of this work? And, and do I actually enjoy 
the minutia, the, the actual doing. And so, uh, and they play off of each other. So like one day you're not having the big, like you're not feeling the big juice and, but you're enjoying the nitty gritty and vice versa some other days. Uh, eventually. And I, how, I, yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So, so, so what's interesting to me then is on the days when your juice is empty, uh-huh. you know, how, how long does one have before it's truly a crisis? You know, is it yeah. days? Is it weeks? Is it months? Is it a lifetime? So, yeah. maybe for you I personally, think, as Jared. yeah. So, I think you got it. Hopefully, life is long, you know, and you can, and you can fashion a career pivot uh, or a lifestyle pivot. But it's kind of like a huh, to go with your escape velocity metaphor. It's kind of like a, sh- a rocket ship where you, you know just you gotta just go doop and steer just a t te- like one half of one degree to to the starboard, and then it all this you know six months later you're gonna be in a very different place. And so I've tried to have patience with some of these life decisions. Some you know if you find yourself in like uh, there's there's obviously exceptions, right? If you're in like a really really uh damaging environment or criminal environment or something like that. But I'm assuming it's like everything's on the up and up and there's not abuse going on. We're talking about just like normal work (laughs) drudgery. And it's like, I, I, for the PR thing, I gave it, I don't know. That entire process was probably over a year because one piece of it was changing jobs. I went from one company to another because I had, you know, career related questions from one company to another saying, oh, I was working at a small place. I'd like to work at a bigger place. I'm working in um, uh, public relations in one industry that was kind of dry. I'd like to try something a little bit a little bit sexier. Um, um, kind of a process of elimination. Yeah, well, it was like, oh, let me pivot. Like, what, like, what's my pivot foot? And so that was one piece of it. I'd been at one place for three something years and that was very good in many ways but I had these things that I was like oh I'm uh, I'm unfulfilled in these ways in the career let me stay in PR do some a similar job but move to a larger agency move to a place that was doing um uh, a different like PR for a different industry a different clientele um so that's one kind of pivot that was maybe like six months to get ready for that and then it was another year in something where it was a revelation of, ooh, I'm not really feeling this. And then it was a, but, and yet it was challenging for me because I wasn't feeling it despite I liked my job. Or I, I had chosen the job, you know, I, made, I, I went there with a lot of purpose on those two, for those two reasons. I generally liked the coworkers. I liked my boss a lot and respected him. Um, the work was doable, you know, and so uh, it was that year of going, wait a second, is this actually a, is this a, like, what's not working here? And right. not just being rash about it and going, I'm there a month, ugh, screw this, I'm gone. But working on different things and thinking a lot about, like, wait, what do I actually want in a workplace and what, what gives me that big and little juice? And 
giving it the time to try different things, almost like little mental experiments or mindset experiments through that time. Um, one of the things that was really odd for me that told, told me it was not the right thing and I should move out of the industry and, and again, go into teaching was that entire, hmm, well, at least a portion of my time, there, the school year that I was there, or the, I was going to East Boston and doing Saturday tutoring of middle schoolers. And, and it, I really enjoyed it. The, I had no other tie to this school. I had a couple of mutual friends with people that worked there, but I didn't know anybody that was immediately in that place. Uh, the other people I was volunteering with were doing sort of like they were working for like PricewaterhouseCoopers and it was their, their corporate, you know, they, like they had signed up for like a corporate volunteer thing, but I was just a sole actor and I kept going and would look forward to it, even though it was an hour long ride on the T to get there. And it was 8am on Saturday. And like, by the time I would get there, like all that was left were like the reject Dunkin' Donuts donuts you know like the just, there were no boston cream pies yeah the boston cream is a little much for me it's like you're really investing yourself in the boston cream but like i'm ta- like the reject for me is the like it's the white glazed with the rainbow sprinkles on it and that's just not i just uh, sprinkles and it's like but i was doing that and going wow i'm enjoy like something keeps bringing me back to that there's a juice there right so and what yeah what drove you to that opportunity in the first place um, how did you how did you find out about it? Found out about it because my wife had taught at that school, and and so by say five six months into that PR job, when I was really feeling some dissatisfaction, one of my ways of exploring is this for me. Um, was by trying out, like do, looking for opportunities to try out other things. Um, in fact, it's how I got into PR in the first place was I tried it out. I was uh, like an intern, like an, I answered a Craigslist ad and interned part-time and went, oh, this is good enough to, to I, I'm will, at that point, I was willing to like, oh, scale down some of the music stuff and, and, it, and, it, and it sated some of my, anxieties about, oh, I don't want to be a 50-year-old lugging heavy amps. I'll dial down some music. It's worth it in order to dial up the involvement in PR. Were you looking for a PR gig on Craigslist? No. Or were you just looking for something? I was looking for was something. And PR, marketing, writing, editing, like that kind of thing was one of the things. I had maybe a few buckets of things that I was looking at. Uh, so I was, yeah, I was going on Craigslist looking at, I think one of the subcategories at that point was like PR slash marketing slash something. But I was just looking at it among several other things. Uh, I think, you know, I would have, I could have, you know, you wonder about where, where other things could have gone. I could have taken, had such an opportunity come up, I could have taken, in, taken an internship uh, in like, city government or something like that. Like that was, I remember that being another one. I remember a third being, um, cause I have an interest in history and antiques and sort of an aesthetic sense. And so I remember walking up and down 
Charles Street in Beacon Hill, where there's a bunch of antique stores, and going in and chatting with the proprietors, asking if they wanted an apprentice. And I came to one that had a, like, I was very interested, still am, in, like, antique maps and manuscripts and books and that kind of stuff, and found there's a particular store on, on Charles Street that has, that's the, their specialty. And super cool old, yeah, old maps, and, like, you could get, like, a travel book and, like, how people would travel through Europe on the train schedules from 1914 and stuff like that. The big fold-out paper yeah, that yeah, the somehow big, right, it's a little into... It's a little Bidecker guide, and it's, like, Bidecker's guide to southern Italy, and you fold out the train timetables and stuff, and I thought that stuff was really cool. Um, and so I remember going in and talking to the, the lady, what was that, the Eugenie Gallery. I remember talking to, I remember talking to the lady, and she was weirded out. She was like, I tried to make it as least, I'm just like, seriously, I'm, I'm just, I just, I just want to try this out. And I, I'm not an idiot and I'm not going to tear any of these valuable maps. That's, I can give you that. That's my skill set. I'm not going to spill coffee on anything. And do no harm as do, the first Do rule. no harm. Do no harm. But I really want to learn this. And it's like, oh, what's the big picture there? I don't know. I had sort of an idea of like, oh, maybe when, uh, uh, I'll, uh, the ultimate goal is to be uh, the guy on Antiques Roadshow, you know? And so it's like, what's the goal? So anyway, you say, oh, how did you end up tutoring? That was, uh, that was the next time I sort of went exploring in that way. But it was the same kind of thing where I go, oh, I've got like two to four buckets of things I might be interested in. So when I'm looking at Craigslist job boards or networking, or talking to friends, or whatever, it was, oh, something in teaching, in this case. Um, um, what are some opportunities in that? Talking with people, talking with people. Oh, cool, they have, like, this school that I am already have, like, a little foot, a little toe in. I know a couple of people there. I'm familiar with their general vibe. Um, it, it would be pretty easy to get, it, it would be one email, two emails, to set up a, a, a Saturday volunteering. And then you're just, I feel more part of it. I'm in the building. How does it feel to be in a school when you haven't been in a school for 10 years? Like that, that, that kind of thing. So what, tell me more about that, Yeah. you know, intuition and feeling yeah. as opposed to the, maybe not the opposite, but the complementary aspect of more kind of a logical, methodical, you know, I was a jazz musician. Yeah. I need money to support a family, ergo law school. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm very curious about people's antenna for how they feel in an environment or how they feel in a, in a certain role. So what was that like? What were you feeling when you were on those first few tutoring sessions with the white donuts, with the sprinkles? Like <laughs> what, what kind of emotions were, were cycling through your head at that time? I think it was the seeds planted of the... The big, the big juice and the little juice. There's little bits, just the little seeds of going, oh, I'm here for a, uh, a purpose, which is, you know, these are, the, the demographic of that student body was, was, were largely immigrants, a lot of English as a second language, a lot of, you know, pretty poor. Um, and yet here in just in a, like a teeny tiny way, 
I'm glad that the school for, you know, the pros and cons of this school was offering this auxiliary help. Um, sometimes the students didn't see it that way because, like, this is, like, a bummed-out 12-year-old who has to get up at 8 and do math on a Saturday and so was not super excited to be there. But when... But I enjoyed it in spite of that. I was like, oh, I enjoyed... Almost like an entertainer, I was pulling on my old comedy stuff, my old improv stuff, my old music stuff, and going, oh, can I just get them to, like, laugh a little bit? Even though the things I have in common with this kid are very slim. Hmm. I'm white. They're usually not. I am feeling financially secure. They may, maybe they are, I don't know. They're not good at math. I'm also not good at math, but, but better than them. <laughs> so, like, whatever they were doing, factorization, I was confident in what I was doing with them, you know? So you were, like, you were one chapter ahead. I at was least. at least a chapter ahead. And all of that, and so it was, again, it was those, the being conscious of all of those things and saying, um, um, I... I guess I be- I believe in this is like a is a way to a way to put it, you know. If I was like, ugh, it's like snowing out, and I really don't want to get on the tee for an hour, I would go, no, but it's really meaningful. And then, if I was feeling bad about the meaning, the greater meaning, going, oh man, have you seen the MCAS, the state testing scores? They're still really bad for the school. Uh, I don't think they actually were, but I'm just using that as a hypothetical. But like, um, or I don't feel like I'm making progress with this kid. At least you can get, I don't know, the like the immediacy of it, the immediacy, like like a performance. Even though I'm not, I'm not trying to. But also like how to how to play to a different crowd. I'm used to playing very broadly to an enormous nightclub or to a wedding, um, and with this, it was one kid subdued, not very receptive to being there. And I'm sitting with them at a computer doing uh, math drills. So it was like learning a new, learning how to play to a new audience, and that was kind of like in a craft way, kind of played into my performer thing. And like, how do I play to play to a crowd of one? Was that opportunity, that kind of one-on-one, spontaneous mm-hmm. improvisational exchange between two, between performer and audience, was that missing in the in the PR world for you? No, I feel like I feel like actually that was one of the things that was appealing about PR and and was that the work as office jobs go, as business jobs go, it was one of the more performative, one of the more active job roles. You are pitching re- real live reporters and trying to get into their psychology and hook them on a story idea for, you know, to service a client. It was performing um, on your client call and saying, hey, here's the great things that we did this week and how do we shape this and and how, how do you interact with a client to say, hey, you really think that our strategy should be A, we think our strategy should be B. And, and I found that kind of stuff really... Um, appealing. I think it was other aspects of that job that were a turnoff, which was it just, it was 
I think it was so many things at once in a forum that I just found distasteful, which is just like everything coming through email, everything coming through Google Docs or Microsoft Word, and it just related in writing. And it was almost, I, I had a lot of difficulty being able to prioritize, being able to, uh, what's another kind of corporate-ish word, buckle down and just do it without getting in my own head about it and going, well, is this really the best thing to be doing right now? Like it would, it would be the kind of thing of like spending way too long creating an agenda or creating my schedule for the day and that rather than actually executing on that schedule. Right. That was, that was the part that fell down. I thought the performative piece of it actually was one of the appealing things. And that's curious to me because currently as a teacher, mm-hmm. um, now pre COVID pre quarantine, yes. um, I, I would imagine quite a lot of your time would be preparing for the day's lesson. Yes. So is it is it different in teaching than it would be in PR? In other words, is it more pleasurable to spend that time kind of crafting and planning and curating what you're going to be doing in advance of actually doing it? Yeah. I think that there, the major thing with teaching is there is a very, very hard deadline because the kids are coming in the room regardless of what you do. And so the show, like, I've heard this described in peop- with interviews with people who are on Saturday, Saturday Night Live where they don't have a sketch completely written or the props aren't done or something like that. And it's like, well, you know what? At 11.30, the show is going on regardless. So you got to figure it out. And so I like that aspect very much of it being showtime. And I think that that is a major something. That's something that over a course of several jobs, a course of several, not even just jobs, like a course of a couple of different career chunks, I've found that to be an appealing thing of like, there's an on time and then there's an off time. And, and, and there's all sorts of reasons that appeals to me. But that helps. That helps. On and off. So on and off as the, I am performing now and now I'm not. Yes. The curtain comes down. The curtain comes down. And right. And so when you're a musician, there's obviously work that's going on behind the curtain. You're practicing a thing. You're rehearsing with the band. You're, depending on your involvement with the overall production, oh, maybe you have to go and talk to the lights person and adjust the lights or the sound cues or whatever. Um, it's very much like that with teaching. The crazy thing is that you're everything, right? You're producing, you're the set designer and you're the costume designer and you're writing the script and, and the props and you're also the lead actor. And, and, and you're, it's not even just lead actor delivering a monologue. I don't think school is like that much anymore. I think you're, you're leading an improv troupe and the people in the troupe don't even know that they're in the play. Like, which, right. Which is always a great setup for a good improv. It's a scene. great, it's great. They're, you're just leading them, leading them through. Um, so it's almost like they're volunteers on stage and you're, and you're getting them in. So the, the performative aspect and the scrappiness and the availability of willing volunteers slash participants slash students mm-hmm. is that do, do you were you were you drawn to the earlier grades and the elementary 
stage because that was more accessible or were there other reasons why you are not now currently a whatever history teacher in for high school. you know high school right? right so going into teaching i did something that fits the same pattern as what we were talking about which was i tried out uh i tried on a little lot of different costumes you know i but in a very compressed timeline because by that point being slightly older and with like slightly more things weighing on me, mean, meaning like not necessarily financial, but I was like, you know what, if I'm going to make another shift, I want to get going with this. I'm not going to just, I can't spend, you know, a year flipping around. Um, I left the PR job on that day we talked about earlier where I just sort of uh, decided to quit. And very, very soon afterwards, within like a week, I had set up a bunch of shadow dates, called up a bunch of friends and said, hey, you're a teacher. Can I go spend the day with you? And purposefully did this in a whole wide variety of school environments. Some were urban, some were suburban. Catholic schools, independent schools, public schools, charter schools, everything. Big kids, little kids. Um, and just hung out. And, man, that in, in like two months, I probably, I must have spent t- at least a dozen, maybe 15, and maybe more. And it was, that was a really, really good early sense. And what I would do was like, I wouldn't just be, sitting in the back, like I would get up in, if, if my friend was cool with it, I would get up in the mix and like be chatting with the kids and get into it. And just like, again, like, like that tutoring, uh, that tutoring job, try out what works with kids and what doesn't work with kids at that same private school or sorry, same charter school that I, uh, did the Saturday tutoring. I ended up taking a part-time job that was sort of a logical extension of that tutoring, which was the same kind of role after school on a week, you know, on a, on, for five days a week. And that was great because it was, you know, it was a short amount of time, I, but long enough where you're like, ooh, this, I'm, I'm with a larger group of kids. I was with a group of kids rather than one kid. Um, so there was an element of sort of classroom management to it. There was also f- the feeling of being in a school every day and you see the person at the copier and you're like, oh, how you doing? Oh, hey. And like that, you get into it a little bit and you feel like you're playing, like an intern. You feel like you're playing the game a little bit and you try it on for size. And so a combination of all those things, that after school job, shadowing all these friends, um, and then later, not that much later, huh, six weeks later, deciding, you know what, I'm really, uh, I've, I've, all of those experiences led me to say, you know what, I'm really, yep, teaching is for me, let's do this. Going to grad school, which I was skeptical of, I didn't want to just, just do it. Um, that experience was amazing too, because it was very much, I'm in the, I'm in the classroom every day, anti-taking grad classes, but I'm in the classroom every day, feeling the slog and being in on the planning meetings and on the faculty meetings and and the parent conferences and all the stuff that comes with it and getting the rhythm. That year, 
part of my time was with little kids, elementary school, and part of my time was with middle schoolers. And it, it was a combination uh, going into that. I remember going into the second part of the year. I had had a really, really good time with the little kids. I was excited for the second part of the year. I enjoyed the teacher that I was going to be sort of co-teaching with, interning with, whatever. And um, uh, the kids, like the my vibe with the kids just didn't click. Hmm. Um, and like the rhythm of the job didn't didn't click i like um it, it like the day made a whole like i never quite like i i got a rhythm of the day even though like for an elementary school teacher it's really it's just very weirdly long and your breaks are kind of strange and stuff but like everybody has a sort of like what's the keep calm and carry on kind of ethos and in middle school, because it's so periodized, and oh, I, when, when's the next time I'm going to see your class? Oh, I'm going to see you third period on Wednesday. Okay, cool. We'll pick up the conversation then. That was not as natural for me as the split-second decisions you have to make as a little kid teacher, an elementary school teacher, which is, ooh, it's all up to me. We're having a really good... We're finishing up this conversation. We're finishing up this project, and I'm pushing into my own scheduled time for phonics instruction. But you know what? I can shave five minutes off the phonics instruction. I'm going to make that game time decision because I want to give an extra time to like close up the previous lesson. Um, so that, that so kind of rhythm felt... I was, I was able to jive with that. Uh, so there's more agency, more autonomy in, in the daily flow as opposed to just the 45 minutes that you have that set of students. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends. That it really depends on the school because different schools have different climates around that. But that—that's what I found. That having um, the planning, the materials, you know, setting the stage, all that sort of stuff, and then the time management—it was all. I was able. I felt comfortable owning all of that. I still feel comfortable owning all that stuff and going, hey, you know what? I made the decision to to do this rather than that. What sometimes I remember something happening recently, um, which was my students came back from the lunchroom and there was obviously some weirdness that went down. There was some, this kid had hit another kid and they retaliated or something like that. And everybody in the class was... Uh, affected by it and so even though I had a plan to go hey here's what's going to happen when we come back to lunch we're going to do science and then we're going to do a math lesson and then we're going to do something else I feel good about reading the room and saying oh you know what I can tell that even if I try to push through on the science lesson everybody's heads are going to be elsewhere it's like I'll take 15 minutes and and resolve the lunchroom dispute you don't have that. I'm, I'm sure you have it in other ways with, with uh, teaching upper grades, but I don't know. The the doing with younger kids, like uh, I feel more flexibility. I feel more ownership of the situation, and and um, I don't know. I find that satisfying. It's it's different for different people. You know, you talk to older, you talk to teachers who teach middle school and they or high school, and they look at primary school and they're like. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. So now your yeah. your grad program, if I remember, was was somewhat unique in that you really were 
really teaching almost from day one. Yes. As opposed to a couple of semesters of theory and foundation and lectures yes. before they even kind of let you um, Get take it. charge of a classroom. Yes. Yes. I found that really helpful. Because also I wanted to get in there. Like the thing I was missing was the experience with the kids. And I valued very highly um, having, and, and also it, 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 it implants in my brain when it's a thing I see that's actually working rather than, oh, here are different, this still happens. Here's a binder full of different, different um, structures to use with your class. Different structures to learn math you math problems and if i read in the book oh you give everybody a little flashcard and then they walk around this thing and they hold them up and they try to they quickly find pairs and then they scatter if someone describes it like i'm describing it to you now i go yeah maybe i'll use it maybe not but if i happen to pop into another person's classroom or in grad school being in the classroom every day and seeing it happen it is implanted in my brain and now it's in my repertoire of strategies. It happened very much with my music work too. It's a similar thing where, yes, I'm going to listen to a song and learn it on sheet music and do all that stuff. But until, but the way it would really get in and how I learned so many other songs, especially playing with other musicians, is hearing you play the song or hearing some other colleague play the song and go, oh, that's how, oh, I see what they, they, they went to the two five one turn around here and oh I, I see rather than reading it on the sheet music mm -hmm. and it's about or or importantly especially since I was playing not so much in formal bands but in these piano bars where a lot of it was about audience interaction and how do you set up a song for success in a given room it would be seeing how how a colleague would set up the song and you don't want to like outright steal from them but you could kind of be influenced by that and I go oh I see how it can be done I see how it can be done and so that that having grad school in that setup with a lot of emphasis on being in the classroom and having a mentor teacher that was really really helpful and where I would imagine too where the there there are stakes right yeah you these are real kids yeah in a real school you know this is not a psychology lab in an artificial setting right with a with a toy doll instead of a child yes. like you're you're actually whether whether it's working or not you're having an impact on real kids from day one yes or maybe day 10 yes it was actual children and so that was really a cool aspect of that program right you're not just for your final project in a class <laughs> it worked both ways your final project in a given class that was held in a lecture hall um, oftentimes, and I mean, you know this, oftentimes in education school, it's, it's put together a series of five lessons and like a little mini unit. And you write all these things really detailed with bullet points and accommodations and materials. And it's like a, you're writing a cookbook. And especially at that point, you don't have enough experience with kids to know just the basics. How long is this thing going to take? Would I be, I, I'm, given the guideline, oh, you have 30 minutes to teach this. Will this actually play out in 30 minutes? Hmm. Um, who knows? And so what would be really fun or valuable about the way that my program was structured was, was either 
I could try something. I could write a lesson and, or with a group project, put together lessons, and then go and try it and tweak it and edit it. Or vice versa, if it was like, you know, a lecture hall-based class and I wasn't really feeling the assignment, I could do the other thing, which I'm like, oh, what if, what's the thing we did last week? Oh, yeah, we did the thing with the maps and putting the dolls on the different locations of the maps to approximate geography and stuff. Cool, cool. I'll just write up the thing we informally did last week. I, it would go both ways. It would go mm. both ways to Saturday, right? Where, again, what's happening day to day in a classroom is pretty pretty different than what's happening um, in a lecture hall or what the requirements of an education course are. So what's talk to me about some of the... What are the little juices and the big juices for you now in this, you know, you've had a few years under your belt in this stage of teaching for you? Yeah. Um, so I think the, mm, I think there's a lot of reasons, a lot of the, there's the big fundamental juice, the big fundamental motivation, which is having hopefully a positive impact. Certainly it's intentioned as a positive impact. There is the, the ego trip of going, you know what? Pretty much everybody remembers their third grade teacher's name. And maybe they, whether they liked him or not, pretty much everybody has an opinion. Shout out to Mrs. Brown Mrs. at Brown. Tampa Palms Elementary. There you, right, right. And everybody, And so there's that ego trip where you're like, I'm immortal to that kid. I'm immortal. And and maybe they don't remember it fondly, but there it is. I you have an impact. You I think there's hope again, hopefully it's fondly. Um there is the there is also the confidence. This is another reason why I like teaching little kids. There's a confidence in the material that I'm teaching that it's going to be valuable. I don't get, both because they're little and they're not obstinate, but also because the, 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 the material I'm teaching, no one is ever going to say, oh, Mr. Izzo, when am I ever going to use that? It's not calculus. It's not, it's not obscure Victorian literature. You know, it's adding. And, like, if a kid ever, like, is going down the road of, like, Ugh, I'm like, I can guarantee you I can guarantee that you're going to need adding. Like, no, like, I, if you, like, I, I, I feel very confident in that. And so I never have, like, a big picture crisis going, what's the point of this? Because I'm teaching how to measure with inches. And, like, I, my computer is sitting on a desk here. And it's like, oh, when I was moving the desk over, wow, I used inches and area to go, wow, is this going to fit? You know, like, it is going to be impactful on your life. And maybe you're not going to remember that Mr. Izzo taught you that, but it's, it's, if it goes in there, it's going to be used. So I've, or on the other side, reading. Like, the kid, you're going to need to, like, you think you're reading right now, but I guarantee that you're going to need and want to read at a higher level than what you're reading right now. So I feel completely confident in what I'm teaching you or what I'm asking you to do, even if it's a little bit arduous and you're putting up a fight, I feel very, very confident in the benefits and my justification in doing that. Has the last, what, four months, five months yeah. of the quarantine and the inevitability of 
chaos and uncertainty and ambiguity um, for the near term. Where these days, where are you getting your little juices and big juices from? I think that the, the, um, I think the, so on the last point I made about sort of like the academic benefit, I think is both is really uncertain, but also more beneficial than ever because who knows what the lasting impact of, of five months of interrupted schooling and granted there's been distance learning, but it's really, really uneven. Um, who knows what the lasting academic impact of that will be. And so, and so any encouragement I can give my now recently departed class or incoming class to still work hard or still achieve, even if it's a some strange at home or hybrid model, is is has gotta be valuable in some in some way. In some way. Um I think there's also an element of of like communicating to kids it's like something that's not exactly even like a school or academic thing which is whoa in like insane and unpredictable times there are like it's not like it's not like one day there's a roman empire and the next day the roman empire has fallen and the paychecks don't cash like we're still we're still rolling here and so just be like, it's an, a major, major thing not to go to school for months and months. However, I'm still here, <laughs> you know, and school in some way is still here. So over in the spring, one of the things I thought about was how to maintain at least a teeny bit of consistency, be able to reach out to kids, have genuine conversations with them, whether it's in a whole group or one-on-one on Zoom or Google Meet, and not have it feel all, you know, like have the, have the, have the vibe of those conversations be somewhat approximate to what it would be in, in person. Um, and not all like sort of, I don't know, fake and manufactured, uh, you know, like, oh, I just saw this Zoom project on Pinterest and I'm gonna try it out, you know? I did some of that just for fun, but it's still like, maintaining the relationship and say like, hey kid, just because like you're not getting on the school bus, there's still school as an institution exists. The class, the class community still exists. I think that that stuff has been important. How much of the, so you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the currency of teachers is you know, these binders of, of lesson plans and ideas and yeah. different strategies, you know, are, are those all out the window right now? Or can you still cling to some of the strategies and lesson plans that worked in a non-remote setting and simply apply them through zoom Mm -hmm. or is just is this such a drastic 180 in terms of the interaction with your kids that a new set of notebooks and binders need to be created yeah i think that i think that especially at the um, i think that teachers of older students are more well suited to this environment one reason is I think oftentimes those teachers were already using something like a Google Classroom where you post 
assignments and you have class discussions and students will write their paragraph on the French Revolution in Google Docs and submit it digitally anyway, or they do it on their iPads and they submit it through a, a, you know, an assignments management app anyway. And that's already been a thing for at least five years. And so for older students and teachers of older students, it's not quite as daunting. I think for little kids, it's challenging because you, although eight-year-olds are quite well-versed at dealing with iPads and Chromebooks, um, there's not the, quite the same facility. Um, you need, they're, they're not super autonomous, and so it's a problem on the home front because you still need an adult to go, they're like, oh, it's glitching, and it will take a parent or an adult in some way to go, oh, just here, reset the Wi-Fi, it's gonna be fine, you know? that kind of thing, where a 12-year-old will know how to do those things. A 12-year-old will have no problem, even if they handwrite something, taking a photo of it and uploading it to Google Drive. A little kid might. Or it takes a lot of training on the part of the classroom teacher to, they can do it, but to like teach a seven-year-old how to do that. Um, do you think? Uh, and, and then on the other side, I think one of the clutch, clutch things with student work at all levels is group work. And so you think about being on a Zoom and then going to a breakout room, mm. that kind of thing. That stuff is really valuable. And, pro you know, probably can work okay with high schoolers. It's, I, I didn't have the guts to try it with my kids last spring. Um, I would, I did mostly I did mostly whole group stuff. Um, I think it's. I think it would be challenging. I think it'd be challenging because, like, in the classroom, you've got groups basically doing little breakout rooms. There's a table of four over here and a table of four over here, and like, oh, you two are kind of. I need to have like a little more focused thing. It's just two of you over in this corner, that kind of thing, and I'm cycling around the room and checking in and these kids need scissors and this kid like has no idea it needs to be repeated the assignment and the other little kids don't quite know how to translate what the assignment is for that kid. An eighth grader, if you've got a group of four and there's one bozo, the other three know how to do school enough. Mm -hmm. They've got enough years of school under their belt where they're like, what it is I want? Oh, he, can't, he, what did he, oh, he wanted like three bullet points about the, the chapter plot. All right, all right, all right. And they can kind of explain it to themselves whereas it would take quite an outstanding seven-year-old to be able to rally a group of three or four to just get the job done mm -hmm. that stuff is that's tricky that stuff is tricky for little kids so well, go ahead sorry now we're getting to be about the time that i had budgeted so i i want to see if i can land the plane land it so um So your friend's dad that went from jazz musician to lawyer. Yes. You know, that struck me because you couldn't pick two better examples for both ends of the spectrum of yes. Yes. St levels of stability and respectability and just career growth, et cetera, et cetera. So 
what's your third, sort of 30 second assessment of what, what drove your friend's dad to make that decision? What was, what was the force of the, what was, what was fueling the escape velocity that that gentleman needed to make the leap from one type of career to a very drastically different other? I wonder with, uh, with that character, <laughs> that anecdote, I wonder if he and if other people who have done some switching in their time, like, do they feel like they have a choice or do they feel like they're being forced? I do wonder with that friend's dad, did he feel, you know, that life was sort of running him? I don't know. I don't know if you would put it like that, but I do wonder where you feel like I've got no choice. I've got to provide for my family. I've got a uh, parental pressures, right? My mom and dad are saying I got to quit being a, a, a flopping around at nightclubs and I got to get serious. I wonder, and then, and then later on, 25 years later, you're looking at your instrument and going, yeah, I was justified in that. I'd made the right decision. I don't, I'm, I'm putting a lot on that, on that guy. I don't know. I've never had a conversation with him about this. Um, I feel for me, I, if I felt sort of out of control with these experiences, meaning I'm in that public relations job and I'm feeling there's something in me that's dissatisfying, I can't control it, I really, you know, I, I try to tamp it down, it was, and just deal with it, go on with the with the job i felt there in all of these pivot points all of these cases of changing it was wow i'm taking some piece of that dissatisfaction i'm playing piano and i don't want to be 50 lugging an amp i'm doing pr and i'm not getting the big picture the little picture satisfying the, i'm not finding satisfaction from either of those things uh who knows what will be with teaching <laughs> if that comes to an end at some point um Trying to say, cool, I'm going to take that core of dissatisfaction and I, I, and use it positively as the engine for moving on to the next thing. Thanks for listening. Escape of Velocity is hosted and produced by me, Kevin Sawyer, and presented by Modern Word Shop. Modern Word Shop helps startups and entrepreneurs make their words work harder through a full range of writing and editing services. www.modernwordshop.com And yes, that's Word Shop with a D. I hope you're feeling more inspired to break through the inertia of the everyday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. And subscribe to the podcast to get fresh episodes delivered to your RSS feed. Until next time... Aim high, and don't let gravity stop you.